Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Welcome to My Millennial Property with John Pigeon and Emily Wallace. Uh, today we're going Q&A, but we're also talking a little bit about the census data which has just been released and what that may mean and the stats that we can extract as a property investor that can help us make some key decisions around investing in certain areas or just generally the the country of Australia. So we'll explore that and many more when we chat Q&A. Let's do it. Now, John, you're right onto the census data because... As far as I can see, it was only released like five or six hours ago. Have you got alerts set or what's the go? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Emily, my youngest son uh, goes to swimming sessions three times a week um, okay. from, from seven to eight. Oh. So I actually take that time to do some good work, good quality work where no one interrupts, the phone doesn't ring. That's fair. And uh, yeah, I popped the Fin review into my laptop this morning, and bang, here's the uh, the data results, or the, I suppose the um, yeah snippets from it at least. Interesting. And what's caught your eye in the data that's been released? Yeah. So interestingly enough, um, obviously the population is growing, um, yes. but majority of the population came, or migration anyway, before COVID. So that has tainted the their growth quite considerably. So mm-hmm. we'd probably assume that there's going to be a little bit of a, a lag in that and then the next 12 to 18 months, two years, will be a bit of catch-up for those that were planning to come out here in the first place. Sure. Um, but definitely a an increase in uh, Indians coming into the country and they're in the top five of most common people moving from um, countries, yeah. um, including y- your standards like... Uh, England and um, Scotland, Ireland, etc. So I'm I'm scrolling as we're talking. I'll be honest, and I've come across the snippet about who is the average Australian. This is interesting. The average Australian here's what they look like: a female, age thirty to thirty nine years, living in a coupled family with children, living in the greater capital city area, with an average weekly family income of three hundred thousand dollars or more. That is our average Australian. Quote Teresa Dickinson. There you go. Unbelievable. Yeah, so that is interesting. So we're up about 2 million people since mm-hmm. 2016 as a, as a country. So we're, we're sitting at over 25 million now, um, which uh, again talks to the whole supply-demand thing. Are we building enough houses for the increase in population? Um, and this is obviously done every five years, so 2016 to 2021 and then released somewhat time after that. But baby boomers are getting overtaken by millennials. So oh. 
Australians aged 25 to 39 are overtaking baby boomers as the largest share of the population with newly released census data placing millennials neck and neck with their cashed up parents. Oh, wow. So that's interesting, isn't it? So interesting. does that mean the baby boomers are falling off the perch? Um, or there was just a lot of babies um, occurred a few years prior, right? So um, interesting stat and that talks to first homeowners, doesn't it? Um, mm. Those That age group, 25 to 39, getting into the market for the first time. Yeah, indeed. It is interesting how they are neck and neck. I'm just looking at the data as well. Um, and it does speak to a, a lot of how that influences the property market because – and also, I mean, even just reading what the average Australian looks like, right, kind of fits mm. in that millennial bandwidth. Um, there was also some data I noted around, I'm not sure if you saw it as well, but unoccupied properties. Yes. Says there is over 1 million vacant homes across Australia. Mm. Which, are you quite annoyed with that? Because I am. Well, I, where are these? Ha- like, Where? <laughs> Tell me yeah. where, because that's uh, when we have such a housing crisis, mm. that is of great concern. And what's being done with those properties? Why are they vacant? That's my question. Yeah. So there's a lot of what we call old money where uh, multi-investors from years ago have just got these properties and can't be bothered renting them out or for tax reasons don't rent them out and they're just sitting there vacant, um, a lot of them going to ruin. And, mm-hmm. and eventually in another 20 years' time, they decide to put them on the market or they pass away and then it's the estate to look after. So that's a lot of them. But also um, overseas investors sometimes as a tax haven in Victoria, uh, um, not Victoria, Australia, will buy a property and also keep it vacant for a period of a time. Right. That's kind of, I mean, now just to note, that's not too dissimilar from the data that was in 2016. I think it was mm. a million and 30. Oh, uh, here we go. This challenges my reading of numbers. 1,039,879 in 2016, as opposed to 1,043,776 this uh, census. So it's really not, I mean, it always has been for the last five years over a million. Yeah. Um, but yes, that is of a bit of a concern when we have such a housing problem at the moment. Yeah. Um, the, the number of homes owned outright um, has increased by 10%. However, the number owned with a mortgage has actually doubled. Okay. Right. So what that's saying basically is, okay, over time, people are paying off their homes. Great. But those that have got into the market and taken on a mortgage, uh, there's been a lot more of those since the last data five years ago. So that sings to low interest rates, doesn't it? Now I can get into the market because the running costs of holding a mortgage is cheaper. Um, So I'll I'll get into the market now. Um, And also maybe from my point of view, maybe it is that millennial age group that's having an impact is they're wanting to get into that home um, purchase earlier as well. Yeah, correct. It might be happening sooner and obviously the way interest rates have been Mm. hasn't been too challenging provided you've got deposits uh, to do so. So that that doesn't really surprise me either. 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, I just find this stuff really interesting just to, to see. I, I like stats. I'm really uh, – I could read stats all day, to be honest, and, and <laughs> we can interpret them how we need to, but it's just interesting to see the trends, what happened in 2016, what happened in 2011 before that, and now what's happened in 2021. But the general consensus, Emily, <laughs> is that – uh, Australia is growing in population and the last five years has seen an extra two million people. Yeah, pretty crazy. Wild. Wild. <laughs> All right. So let's um, let's talk about some beautiful questions that our listeners have had for us. They've, we've got questions coming about years really because every time we go to a Q&A episode, we realise we haven't actually completed all the Q&A from the previous list of questions that we did. So if That's you've right. recently posted a question that hasn't yet been answered, it is coming. It's just that we we get so many, we're just working our way through them. Totally. And and uh, last thing on the census, if you want to go and have a look, if you're a, a lover of stats like I am, go to the abs.gov.au uh, and you'll see census data and you can actually click on quick stats which give you a quicker overview and you can actually type in or or find your uh, council or your government region and you can see that as a whole uh, and which is really interesting in terms of own mortgages outright, um, percentage with a mortgage, percentage of home ownership versus renting, um, median incomes, household incomes, all those sort of things. So, yeah, some really good stuff in there. Millennials love a quick stat. We don't want to read the entire thing, right? We want high level, tell me the facts, get to it. That's right. <laughs> give me give me a quick um, snapshot of it all. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, papers try to do that as best they can, but it depends what you're after within those stats, isn't it? How to mm. apply it. So don't know if you've had this, Emily, but I definitely have. Um, Daniel Akers says, what are your thoughts about buying a property near major power lines? I've heard that some banks have issues with power lines being within 150 metres away. How does this impact me living there and renting the property in the future? I'm literally working on a property right now that has that exact criteria and talking through the pros and cons of it because... Generally speaking, a property located near power lines, the price point will grant you greater land or potentially greater house for the inconvenience or the deterrent of the power lines being in existence. And so this profile we're working on, this is a house on like 700 square metres of land versus two suburbs over a three-bedroom villa unit. So there's a big difference. And it's a visual thing. It's also... I don't know if you know the answer to this, uh, and I've got to research it myself, to be honest. Uh, Is it a health concern to be near power lines? I'm not sure, but clearly the banks Mm. can have problems with it if they're not willing to lend against. Yeah, well, my mail is that it's more dangerous to stand in front of a microwave than it is to to live near power lines, but that might be just a power company talking (laughs) talking their power lines up. But look... High level when banks are looking at purchasing or lending money for that purchaser, um, they'll do a valuation, right? Yes. And it will be an independent valuation that's um, 
that's ordered by the bank. And I've actually got one in front of me here. And they'll look at two areas. They'll look at property risk ratings and they'll look at market risk ratings. So market risk ratings being the recent market direction, the market volatility, local economy impact and market segment conditions. So none of that has any relation to overhead power lines. Yep. However, property risk ratings, we've got location and neighbourhood all right. Yes. Directly relates to power lines. Um, land, including planning and title, maybe, maybe not. Environmental issues, you could argue that it does. Mm-hmm. And improvements um, to the property, probably not. Okay. So, in short, Daniel, the banks will have some issues with it. They'll take that into account when they'll uh, perform the valuation and they may put a red mark against uh, location and neighbourhood based on the the lines being so close to the house, Um, whether it be because it's an eyesore or whether they think it's a potential hazard or what that may be. But I had an experience last year, I think it was, where there was power lines nearby and I didn't think it was nearby, nearby, Mm -hmm. like it was some way away, but they actually made note of it in the valuation. Oh, Um, there you go. Yeah, so there it does with valuers, as we know, uh, it depends on which side they get out of bed as to what <laughs> comments they make and their thoughts based on market sentiment and everything else. But, uh, yeah, factor that in when you're doing your research. Generally, I think anyway, I don't know what your thoughts are, Emily, but I probably don't want to wake up and, and go outside and pat the dog and see power lines right there. No, I guess it's just that trade-off, isn't it? And this is a, a, an experience that I've seen many buyers go through is is the trade-off getting a larger piece of land, a larger house where their life is more comfortable at home, like in the house. Yes. As opposed to, you, know, you don't really want them in your living room, you know, you don't want that to no. be the view. But yeah, it's an interesting one. More generally, you would see the value of those properties are less than ones that don't have power lines. Yeah, it's just about to say, if you're buying something that is not near the power lines, like for like, except for the power lines, you, you'd you assume that it's going to be more expensive, right? But uh, will it have issues renting? Look, again, buying a good area um, and if it's the worst house in the street or worst house in the suburb because it's next to a power line, I think you'll still get a tenant yeah. um, if the, the supply and demand's in check, right? 100%. What else have we got? Uh, Lockie Dowd says, should you hold or sell property? I currently flip houses. I live in and sell once they have been renovated. Should I be holding and renting instead or should I take the profit so I can continue to renovate the next one? Currently, I have a unit trust where a few mates and I have rental properties, units, not houses. Interesting. Sounds like a bit of a met at the pub. Let's go and buy some units together and uh, set up a trust and away we go. So, but it sounds like the units are separate from the projects that he's doing, right? And flipping. He said That's he's made, right. Yeah, yeah. So he's got yeah. that on the side. What's interesting, and we always talk about this, is time in the market versus time in the market. And the point in which that elevation is occurring does it coincide with the time that you finish the renovation and you're going to sell? Like you're not just banking on the growth of the value proposition of that home just because you've done a reno. Obviously, you need return on your renovation. But hypothetically, if the property cycle was starting to be on an incline and it still had three to six years worth of growth, 
are you worth holding that property? And, you know, your rent covers your mortgage hypothetically or maybe it's slightly negatively geared and you put in 50 bucks a week. You know, what does that equal? You really need like a case scenario Excel spreadsheet to <laughs> unpack with the probability of what that could look like, right? Yeah, there's there's so many unknowns, isn't it? And that's where I suppose flipping houses comes with its risks. It has massive upside, but it also has some volatility attached to it. And and Lockie no doubt realizes that uh, and is asking the question as a result. But I think if we're buying like for like, so if we're looking at this unit saying, okay, I sell this so I can do a renovation on a unit that's in the same location and it's not superior, then we're trading one for another. Mm. So can we avoid that? And I think there's a difference between doing that and saying, well, I'm going to sell this inferior asset so I can put more money into my, my blue chip asset that I'm going to renovate, right, which will give us a greater return. I think there's some merit in doing that. But I yeah. would ask Lockie, could I actually do both? Could I hold and still do the renovation by maybe taking some equity or taking a loan out to be able to get that renovation done, knowing that um, you're not too tightly held, as in your loan-to-value ratio is not too high and, and you can then come unstuck. But um, I think it's, yeah, you're right, you could you could get an Excel spreadsheet happening with the numbers and, and the scenarios and the variables and when I sell and what type of market am I in and the cost of selling as in agents fees and marketing and time to get my money back out. Um, versus the long-term view of am I building a portfolio or is my sole strategy just to simply flip properties, make cash injections and increase that cash injection as we go to the point where I now buy my own home outright one day and my unit trust with my mate still just ticks along uh, next door to that. Um, yeah, I think a lot it, of factors. It probably depends if you treat it as a job or not, right? Like Because that's basically if you were to, let's say, flip a property once every 12 months, if you profited 150K, that's a salary, you know? So is it a, is it a cash flow business in that not the rent, but the actual profit is the mm. cash or is it a long-term wealth strategy, which is going to be a different answer for everybody that considers it. But yeah, there, it is a high level of risk, isn't it? Flipping all the time. I, I, I personally wouldn't do it. That's just my risk profile. And that's just how I would think I would buy and hold as long as I can, as long as I can leverage. But everyone's different as to what their outcome ultimately yeah. is. Absolutely. And I meet a lot of people, um, a lot of them through Clarity Calls that, that love to take on this stuff and want to add value and that and some of them are quite handy. So that is a common situation is like, well, I'm a builder or I'm a plumber or an electrician yes. and I want to do this stuff because I, I'm doing it for someone else and they're paying me to do it and they're getting all the benefits and I'm just getting paid a wage and I want to be able to take this on myself. So it all sounds nice and glossy yes. uh, but when it comes down to it, yeah, so if we're flipping properties within the 12 months, we're, we're getting whacked full CGT, capital gains tax. Um, what are we living off in the meantime? Are we having to work weekends? Have we got a family? Uh, what else do we want to do in our life? There's a lot of factors to consider. So definitely not turning Lockie off that by any means. But um, going back to the question, should I hold or should I sell? My vision would be, I would try to um, hold that property as, as long as I can. And, and once we've sold a property, we can't unsell it. 
Correct. Once it's gone, it's gone. Mm. Just just on the unit trust thing, it's a, uh, it's quite a common one for, I suppose, complex property developments or mini developments with um, joint ventures, isn't it? So usually you've got a system where you're all equal shareholders within the unit trust and you can distribute the profits equally out to all, all people, all parties in that unit trust. So it's quite a good way of keeping everything separate but at the same time minimise maybe your, um, your capital gains tax and um, have that tax structure in place. All right, we better take a break, Emily. We've uh, time shot away on us and we'll get back and answer more questions. We will. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, John, in the last week or so, I've encountered some negotiations that I've never really found myself in too frequently and it's around building and pest inspections. So it's, this is not a question that's come from listeners. This is just some information I thought might be worth sharing because I do see a lot of talk about building and pest inspections in the Facebook group and, you know, people are encouraged to take them out. They're not mandatory. They're not a mandatory thing that you have to do. They're optional. You can make a offer subject to a building and pest. If you're going to auction, you need to do it beforehand because it's unconditional. You can't find something wrong with the property after you've bought it and then uh, fix it up. So what's been really interesting, I've had a minor defect and I've had a major defect. And the minor defect was in relation to some work that hadn't really been completed, a bit of carpentry work, um, some timber needs some reinforcing and then some plasterboards and a bit of paint. And it was something that was unknown to my buyer. Now, we made the contract subject to building and pest. We also made it within the cooling off period of that time frame because generally speaking, the only reason you can withdraw from a property based on a building and pest inspection is for major structural defect. And it's got to be very clear on that. You can't just withdraw because there's a chip in the paint and you don't like it. It has to be a major structural defect. Now, this was classified as a minor defect, but a significant minor defect. What I managed to do is actually renegotiate the sale price of the property on the basis of that with a guesstimation, really, because we didn't have time to pull together a quote of what that work would cost. 
And what that's now meant is, A, the purchase price is less, so the loan amount is less. And B, the stamp duty is slightly reduced. And C, there's more money to actually put into rectifying the issue. So if you are a buyer out there and you're a little bit iffy about a property or you really don't have someone reliable who can come through with you that's a builder or a tradie and comment on the property, don't underestimate the value of a building and pest. I'm not saying it's mandatory. I'm not saying everyone has to do it. But for particularly large purchases, it wouldn't be unusual to put a subject to building and pest clause so that you can uh, discover what may or may not be 100% right with that property. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's uh, it, it leans towards getting a substantial cooling off period, doesn't it? So you've got yes. time to do all of that, right? So and especially in the last six months, I don't know if you've found this, but getting building and pest inspectors in in a normal time frame, i.e. two, three, four days, is being quite challenging in a lot of areas. So if you've got a 10-day cooling off period, for example, that gives you enough time to do that, you get the report back, as you mentioned, major defect, then you can go and get a quote. Okay, that's the quote. Now that's what's going to cost us, right? We want that off the purchase price. Um, because that was never just disclosed to us. So, yeah, that that's a good outcome. You've uh, your client must be wrapped, Emily. Well, one was minor; it was about five thousand dollar reduction. The other one was actually significant, and it was about a forty thousand dollar reduction. And wow. um, the vendor kind of knew that same defect's going to show if another buyer goes ahead with this yes. purchase. So, you know, you either fix it yourself or you pay effectively in the purchase price to have it reduced and sorted. So, yeah, I think it's an interesting time in the market where that's becoming like, to be honest with you, six months ago, something like that popped up. I think the vendor would have gone, there'll be someone yeah, else. Don't worry that's about right. it. Yeah. They Nowadays, get a report done. Yeah, exactly. Just walk mm. on in and sign the paperwork. Nowadays, yeah. I think there's a bit more wriggle room and a bit more time for due diligence for buyers, which is good. Yeah. Totally. So we had one earlier this year where same thing, major defect, um, the, but in, in a lot of cases, the major defect's not urgent to get done right now. Mm-hmm. So got the discount but didn't decide to do the, def- uh, do the improvement or the rectification of that straight away. Mm-hmm. So therefore, you've, you've actually got a, a, an outcome that says, well, if I do it in five years' time and, and the situation's not going to get worse, you've, you've actually had a win, haven't you? Indeed, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think the intention's there to fix it sooner rather than later, but, you know, life gets in the way, so. Yeah, and and on the whole major defect thing, you, you need a good conveyancer to make sure you've got that in your conditions, but also say you're going to auction and, and Melbourne's a really common place to have an auction, as is Sydney. Uh, a lot of the time the building and pest report will be provided for you by the vendor. I think that's more a Sydney thing. Is that a Sydney thing? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you Melbourneites are smart and you go and get your own building and pest independent. We do. Right. So we see a lot of places where building and pest is already provided. Here it is. Great. Okay. No major defects. Right. Fantastic. Most people would say, yep, great. I'm happy with that. We're always getting an independent building and pest report, even though it's provided for us by the vendor. Thanks, but no thanks. Because who's to say that they didn't talk to their building and pest inspector and say, look, don't put any major defects in here because there'll be issues? That's an interesting one. There was actually a a property sort of council debate around that and 
I think at the end of the day, the building and pest inspector has to be an independent third party who's providing a service irrespective of who the vendor is and the buyer is. Yep. It would come back pretty poorly on that building and pest inspector if they had not notated information that was relevant to that report. But yeah, I've always I've been a bit unsure about it because it's just not really the done thing here in mm. Victoria, but it also does save the buyer money rather than yeah, getting I'll, it every time. I suppose I'm not I'm not saying that they would leave it out of the report, but right. they would call it a minor defect. Uh, therefore it doesn't trip the clause of building and subject to building and pest. I, I hear what you're saying. Yes, that, mm. yeah, could very well be the case. And I'm very much devil's advocate here, so it's <laughs> like I'm sure that doesn't happen out there in the real world. <laughs> Indeed. We've waffled, but do we have it? We haven't waffled. We've unpacked a, an interesting topic, which I think is really important for buyers. But do we have a final question to close out the show? We have. It's from Lockie Crease. Now, Lockie is a 21-year-old male and he's studying a Bachelor of Property at Bond on the Gold Coast. My father passed away two years ago, sorry to hear that, and I'm set to inherit a few properties, all debt-free in the coming month. So he's probably already inherited them by now. Um, I currently don't work but require funds to develop the sites as they are all residential development sites. Despite being educated in property, I'm feeling a bit lost and unconfident. Well, no doubt you are, Lockie, because that is a huge undertaking to be 21, Mm. regardless of what you're studying we've probably fair to say there's no experience in buying and just transacting in property, let alone taking on developments in the residential space. So, yeah, um, there's not really a, a question there, but it's just more of a some commentary around, well, how do we navigate ourselves through that? And the, the first thing I would say before you gather your thoughts is the fact that they're all debt-free means that you don't have to absolutely do anything for the next 10 years if you don't want to. So I would actually be saying, look, get your studies done, start earning some income, full-time work so that you can lend money from the banks and in the meantime, talk to council, talk to town planners, talk to builders, talk to anyone out there who's done residential development before and and, and spend some time around them to get yourself educated, um, not in the library sense as in studying lectures but actually out there on sites looking at these development sites and, uh, and, and increase that confidence so that you become unlost. I agree. I think in the first instance if they're properties that can produce an income in themselves, get them rented out, like just get them sorted, get good tenants, get good property managers to handle the portfolio and take your time. You might decide that some of them are going to be a joint venture because they're a larger scale project that might be like a five townhouse development. You might find that there's one that you actually want to live in yourself because it's in a good location. Um, You might just be better selling one of them because the development um, potential is not as great as you thought and it's better as a family home. So that that sort of stuff really requires a fair bit of time and probably an advisor of some sort. I would, I would think I'd, I think at that age with minimal exposure beyond a property, you know, course, I think you're going to need someone in there to be objective and advise on what the best plan would be for each of those individual properties, because Mm. that's a real opportunity. um, And you want to be able to leverage those properties as best as you can to really set you up because that, I presume if it's a portfolio, that very well could be the case. 
Totally. Yeah. And, and Lockie, I just had an idea. Why don't you come to our property masterclass around oh, yes. the country somewhere? <laughs> because we'll uh, unpack a little bit of that mini development stuff and you may get some ideas from that. So yeah, reach out to us if you are listening. Hopefully you're listening to your own question. Uh, but yeah, I think it's it's maybe something that it might be one of the starting points. Um, but yeah, Agree, rent it out, get some income coming in. I think, and I've seen a few of these come by where, uh, well, it's after the fact. They come and say, well, I sold this and now I've moved on. Uh, I think selling it emotionally because they think it's too hard basket is possibly one of the worst things you can do. Now, if you do a FISO and all of a sudden, yeah, I don't think there's a development potential that, that maybe there was or I thought there was, then you can look at selling. But um, a lot of these opportunities come on our desk and we're not ready for them. The timing's not right. I'm still at uni. I've got no money. Uh, it's like, oh, let's off- offload it and, and gather 300, 400, 500 grand. It's nice in the pocket now, but if we only look long term and say, well, if I hold this for another four or five years and do this properly, could actually make a million dollars instead of four, 500 grand. So, yeah, good, good. Um, problem to have um, coming from obviously an unfortunate situation. Indeed. And just as a general note for those of you who are keen on learning more about development and what that can look like, even just a bit more advanced property stuff, uh, as John mentioned, the masterclass is going on the road with the My Millennial Money Roadshow, their tour that they're doing. Uh, I will duck my head into Hobart, my hometown, and Melbourne, and John and Glenn will be at every one because they are the My Millennial Money crew. But John's masterclass, there'll be a link in the show notes to the tickets to that, and it's quite a, a, a small select group, really. It's only, what, up to 30 people max in like a classroom uh, 20. style? Oh, yeah, 20. 20, even, 20 max, yeah. Even better. Yeah. So you'll get some good time with John to discuss any questions as well as the content that he's giving you. So check that out below. Yeah, and we wanted to cap it at 20 just so that there could be some individual questions, people feel comfortable talking about it. We can spend some time answering and going into detail. So, yeah, grab your ticket and it's happening pretty soon. Indeed. Well, until next week, it's been a pleasure, John. It has indeed, Emily. Yeah, some great questions. Couldn't have thought of them ourselves, as always. Um, And keep them coming. Jump in the Facebook group, hashtag property, and we will answer them as best we can. There is a long list, but we love getting ourselves, um, well, we, we don't prep for them, let's be honest, Emily. We, we <laughs> see the questions and we literally just read them out for the first time. Yeah. So you get it's it unscripted. pretty raw. <laughs> Nothing about this show is scripted apart from the first line, which is, welcome to my millennial property. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, sometimes we bugger that up. Yeah. All right, anyway. Any Very case. good. All right, good chat. See ya. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education. That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps. I've created the Solvair Online Academy, open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space. And if you're
you're a first home buyer, I have the course just for you. Everything from pre-approval all the way through into your settlement and everything in between. How to place an offer, how to bid at auction, what to even look for at an open home and what questions to ask the agents. It's all covered in my online course. Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get started today. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.